0: Father, we're grateful to be here this evening and to continue our study. We're grateful for Dr. Ferguson's labors over so many years and the fruit of his labor found in wonderful writings such as this. And we pray that your spirit would be at work as we seek to understand your word through uh, Dr. Ferguson's efforts. We thank you tonight uh, for this um, solemn moment. And yet that light can come out of it and goodness, even in the midst of um, the tragedy of it all. And we pray that you'd help us to attend carefully to these things and to profit so that we could live in this fallen world with hope and with confidence. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well... um, so tonight, I, I'm going to have to be mindful. Uh, nor, normally, I have a glass of water uh, at my table here, and it's uh, placed right next on a wooden de- desk to a metal stand that's holding up my recording device. And apparently, over these many weeks, every time I put that uh, glass down on the table, I made a tremendous uh, uh, banging sound that poor Wes has spent hours going through the recordings to eliminate for the good of our future listeners. So I'm, I've got a a a, a, uh, a bar pad from Artie's that I've put down and I have my now plastic cup of water and I'm hoping that uh, I'm going to save Wes some trouble. But if it looks like I'm putting that down too hard sometime through the... you shout at me and let me know. All right. um, Quickly, um, uh, last time we were in Chapter 2, Understanding and Blessing, and unfortunately I was having trouble with my printer uh, just before I printed it out. And um, it printed in a way that I don't normally print it and in a way in which I couldn't keep track of the pages. And so I skipped over altogether... Uh, a couple of pages that I wanted to have us um, look at. And um, so I'm going to take us back to that chapter, but if you have uh, other questions, uh, let me take them first. Anything from chapter two that you've thought of since we were last together? All right. Well, let me read um, from the uh, passage that I, I want us to attend to here. Um, if I can find, if I can find it, um, Here we go. This is John 13, verses 14 and 15. This is after the foot washing, uh, and Jesus makes some further explanation. If I, then your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. That you also should do just what I have done to you. Now, with that text in mind, then, uh, here's the question. We didn't address um, the uh, abiding character of this that some Christians have thought they found in those words that seem very much to say that this was something in some form or another that Jesus wanted reproduced by his followers. And there are some uh, Christian denominations that believe that foot washing is uh, some kind of a permanent, abiding right in the life of the church, and they would point to that verse um, to argue for it. Some is a very regular offering. Uh, some, like Rome, very rarely, but um, there's an annual foot washing at least. Um, and so... Uh, I wanted to ask you first, um, do you wash other people's feet? And if not, why not, given Christ's apparent explicit command? So let's spend a few minutes with that question. Anybody want to uh, address it? Uh, well, first let me start. Use your hand, your, your virtual hand. How many of you uh, are involved in regular foot washing? Not, not many, probably. I guess. Um, Foot
1: rubs, <laughs> <laughs> <I> do. do. <laughs> oh well, yes,
0: yeah, the sort of modification. It's like using grape juice at the Lord's supper. Yes. <laughs> uh, oh well, so who who wants to address this question? Why don't uh, we at New Hope? Uh, why aren't we involved in regular foot washing? Are we, do we think we're too good, too big to be a, a part of such a humbling rite? Or who? Anybody want to address that, uh, Chambers?
2: It's not that I want to address it. It's just you're asking the question. I thought for so long because we have had different times, different chapels that we've been involved in and whatnot, where they've had that, and I thought, why? Why I don't understand why we're doing this. I know that that happened then, but is it something that the Lord said, like the Last suffered, But He said, "Do this," because I said to do it anyway. So <laughs> I don't have the other than I'm, I'm glad you're asking the
0: question. <laughs> Great, Bonnie. Fantastic. Uh, Aiden's. Hi. Uh, the the uh,
1: Christian Legal Society has periodically done this.
0: Ah. At
1: annual. Uh, conference and initially it was off-putting for me, but uh, I came to appreciate it. The odd thing I think is that because we are so removed from the practice of foot washing regularly as a culture, it was actually more shocking and more humbling as a um, kind of as a spiritual practice, as a spiritual discipline than uh, than it might have been before.
0: Uh, mm. and
1: it, it's very
0: moving so just hmm. make it sense. yeah I don't doubt that that's a possibility but um, the question is are we in fact neglecting what Christ has called us to do if we're not regularly involved in a foot washing ceremony it does strike me that there are
1: not any other recorded instances of foot washing in, in Acts or any of the epistles as it a command or a, something that's, that's done. That seems fairly important.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great observation, Paul, that, uh, that the Lord's Supper and baptism not only are regularly referred to as rites that belong to the different parts of the visible church, uh, but they're explained at some length so that there's a, an ongoing understanding of what those rites mean and how they participate in the life of faith. Um, So, uh, yeah, I think that would be a very important point. Um, Any other considerations that might help us here? Well, Dr. Ferguson points out that the only other place in the New Testament that we uh, find a reference to foot washing is in 1 Timothy 5.10. And there Paul is speaking of the, the qualifications of uh, the widows who ought to be um, cared for by the church because of the way uh, their particular ministry had been carried out. Um, And uh, he says that these, in the qualifications he lays out, he says they must have washed the feet of the saints. If this was a regular rite to be participated in, by all of God's people, that wouldn't serve as a qualification at all because every widow in the church would have always been involved in that. But the fact that it's a qualification means that it was uh, somehow a a particular achievement or high point in the woman's life in ministry. And then we have to ask ourselves, uh, would that have referred literally to washing feet? And I think the answer has to be no. That of itself could hardly be a high point of her ministry, but rather she gets the point that Christ actually was getting across at the beginning. That is is that the example is not a foot washing in particular, but the example is being willing to be a servant on behalf of Christ for others, just the way Christ was willing to be a servant Uh, on behalf of his father for his people. And uh, I think that's a pretty compelling uh, uh, one-two punch for the idea of foot washing as a permanent ordinance in the Christian church. Um, There might be something, too, as Steve points out from time to time, just as a a kind of uh, attempt to have a historical identification with a certain point in the text to, to... Voluntarily undertake something like that, but um, I think that's the reason why. Um, that um, uh, it's the way uh, Fer- Ferguson puts it at the close of the footnote, uh, like John and Peter, and uh, like John and Peter, Paul sees the action of our Lord in washing his disciples' feet as a model for Christian service. Anybody have a question or comment further about that? All right. Um, then let's press on. From trouble to glory. As, as before, I'm going to read the text. John 13, 21 to, 20 to 31. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned, motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will Give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, "What are you going? What you are going to do? Do quickly." Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him to buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Well, a very dramatic scene. And uh, Dr. Ferguson, straight out of the gate, notices the uh, force of the drama here, uh, that we go from the first verse, um, the, the, uh, where there is a profound change in the, um, what he calls, atmosphere of the room. Um, we go from Jesus being troubled in spirit, through the identification of the traitor, but then at the close of the whole affair, this amazing statement, now, after Judas has left, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. So uh, this is a remarkable thing to uh, participate in and attend to, and Dr. Uh, Ferguson's going to help us understand it. So the chief question is, what on earth made the change. And it was the simple thing of Judas leaving. Um, And he wants to start by having us notice that there's probably more going on in the observation that it was night out than simply uh, describing the atmospheric conditions. Um, But rather he notices in a uh, footnote number one in the text on page 36 that there is a strong motif in John's Gospel uh, contrasting darkness and light, daylight and nighttime, and uh, holiness and truth, and falsehood, um, and uh, sinfulness. Um, and that, that motif... Dr. Ferguson thinks, that is being picked up by John, by this observation that when Judas left, uh, it was night. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The, that, in fact, um, uh, there had been night in that room because of the darkness of Judas's heart. Um, and he took the night, as it were, outside with him. Um, so Leon Morris the great student of the Gospel of John a British scholar said that surely this is more than a time note here's his observation it was night, black night in the soul of Judas he had cut himself off from the light of the world and accordingly shut himself up to night I think uh, um Morris gets it there um, and we remember uh, the words of Jesus in John 11, 10 if anyone walks in the night he stumbles because the light is not in him uh, Herman Ritterboss commenting on this same point uh, said with Judas's departure the die was cast and the separation between light and darkness was final I think that's, those are very powerful uh, observations to help us to get the full significance of what John is aiming at in the uh, portion of Scripture. Um, and uh, so um, this takes us, um, Dr. Ferguson says, to the very heart of who Christ is and what he had come to do. Now then he goes on to have this very interesting discussion of a painting by Salvador Dali um, it's, a, it's a remarkable painting. It's, uh, um, it's not only the most famous painting in Scotland, as Dr. Uh, Ferguson puts it, but probably the most f- famous painting of the crucifixion in, in the modern period, at least. Um, it's over seven feet tall, um, and it is, it is quite a striking thing to see. I wish I could figure out how to get the... Oh, here, here's what I'll do. Um. oh well i won 't take any more time on it. Um, this is a uh, Dolly was a sur- surrealist painter at first and then claimed to uh, have a sort of reawakening of his Catholicism and uh, began to do religious paintings. The point of um, dr ferguson 's consideration of it, however, is that In some ways, it matches what's going on with respect to Jesus in modern theology. That theologians feel free to remake Jesus in light of their own way of seeing the world and what they think is needed in that world. And that's what Dali has done here as a painter. uh, And it's, it's in kind the same as many different modern theologies. They remake Jesus in, uh, in, in light of their own way of looking at the world. And it's a pow- powerful illustration of that. Um, clearly, this is not the Christ of the, John's Gospel. And you may know uh, John of the Cross is not the John of um, the Apostle, but was a uh, uh, um, Reformation-era mystic. Uh, part of the counter-reformation and um, highly, very highly regarded in the Roman Church, but uh, um, uh, John of the Cross claimed to have a vision and he did a sketch of it and Dolly was shown a sketch of that and it is looking at Jesus from above and that was the occasion for uh, Dolly coming up with. But the story of the painting is quite remarkable. There's a Uh, documentary that's been done about it and uh, uh, the subtitle is something like uh, uh, atomic uh, bombs Hollywood and um, uh, St. John of the Cross (laughs) and uh, it gives you an idea of the complexity of the story I won't take any more time uh, to go into it but the main point is a powerful point we have to beware of remaking Jesus in light of our own sense of what is needed in the world or the way we look at it, but rather let Jesus remake our understanding of what is needed in the world and how he uh, sovereignly intends to meet that need. Um, I have a picture of the St. John of the Cross sketch too, but for some reason I can't figure out how to get um, images in the chat. Um, yes, yeah, Steve.
2: Actually, it's Molly this oh, time. Oh, sorry, Molly. No, no, that's okay. I just wanted to add that I really appreciated Dr. Ferguson's um, note about how um, Schaeffer um, mentions or observes that um, in Dolly's painting
0: the cross never touches the
2: earth.
0: Right. Right. It's so, so huge. It is. And the, and you can go further. Uh, if you look at the painting carefully, Christ never cr- touches the cross. Oh. <laughs> um, he, he's kind of in suspended animation with respect to it. Um, and it, uh, there are a number of other things that are quite remarkable about it. Um, but, uh, yeah. In fact, Dr. Schaefer and uh, I don't know whether you had an opportunity to hear of him, but a man called Hans Ruckmacher, who taught art history at the Free University of Amsterdam, was a good friend of Dr. Schaefer's. Uh He wrote a book called Modern Art and the Death of a Culture, which is a very, very powerful book uh, that re- really changed my way of looking at art. I was an uh, art major when I first met um, Dr. Schaefer and Dr. Rookmacher and so I'd spent a lot of time thinking and uh, even practicing art somewhat and um, suddenly it was a whole new world to see it through their eyes together and they really paid a lot of attention to Dali because he was famous as a Catholic uh, as a religious, a Christian artist and they were trying to show that that this doesn't represent any uh, biblical form of Christianity at all
1: very
0: good, thank you. Well, um, so, um, the um, Dr. Ferguson wants to say that um, uh, what follows all of this is, seems to be a pause in the action, he calls it, where we can take a moment and see how costly what Jesus is about to do, will in fact be. Um, and uh, it begins with his reference uh, to Psalm 41, one of you will betray me. And um, in a nice image, Dr. Ferguson describes around the table this rip- ripple, is it I? Um, the, um, but it's uh, Peter Uh, now, who who prods John into uh, asking Jesus who it is. And that's when we get this enigmatic statement, it's the one that I give a piece of bread uh, that has been dipped um, in the wine. And uh, John watches and it's handed to Judas Iscariot. And this uh, leads to the statement that Jesus... um, or is behind the statement that Jesus was deeply troubled in his spirit. Um, They were coming face to face with this terrible betrayal. It's a very strong word. Dr. Ferguson goes into something of its background. There'll be stronger words yet to describe uh, the power of Jesus's engagement with these events. And and, uh, that's an important point. Throughout, we've already noticed, and we'll see again and again, throughout this discourse, Jesus is clearly in control. He is not in the grips of fate or human malice or demonic uh, uh, wiles. Um, He is in control. But, as truly human, Jesus is not unmoved by the events that are about to transpire. And so he should be in turmoil uh, because before him uh, was, in Calvin's words, the treachery of Judas, a crime so monstrous and detestable, struck Christ himself with horror. And that's, a, I think, a profound realization that with respect to his human nature, uh, Jesus found... Uh, Judas's behavior as horrifying. Um, and um, so uh, and then uh, Dr. Ferguson teases us a little bit he, it, it's kind of a little preview of the chapter to come he wants us to reflect on the word troubles for, troubled for a moment and asks us does it ring a bell a few verses on um, Jesus is going to tell his disciples not to be troubled, and it's precisely the same word used in that text. In this world, you will have trouble, but don't be troubled. I've come, I've come that you would have peace. And he says, is there a connection? Well, we'll see later on. So he leaves us there, hanging with abated breath, to uh, uh, wonder what's to come. Um, um, But in the immediate context, he he, uh, uh, wants us to see that Jesus is troubled in spirit because his betrayer is in the room. Um, uh, And he wants to reflect a little bit on page 39 on what was going on with Judas. Um, He had had every conceivable advantage Summed up uh, by being under Christ's care for three year, years and all that that amounted to, uh, and, and yet, uh, and was apparently highly respected by the whole of the apostolic company uh, by being appointed the one that should care for their funds, um, and uh, and yet at the same time he had a resentment against Christ. Uh, that was now really coming to the fore. Jesus had probably recognized it before. Um, As we see, we were given a foreshadowing early on in the gospel. But now he's come to a place of profound inner distress. Um, And the disciples don't get it. Um, But, of course, we who are readers of the gospel uh, had already been given uh, clues that Judas was a betrayer. Uh, as early as John 6:71, we read, and this is just after the high point of Peter's confession, uh, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And John comments, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Um, we've learned that Judas was pilfering money uh, from the treasury and um, it it was clear that um, Judas just couldn't quite get what the governing principle of the whole enterprise was if you look in John 12 4-6 Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples he who was about to betray Jesus, said with respect to the pouring of the ointment, why was not this ointment sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put in it. But he he could behold this extraordinary uh, act of devotion and could not see in it love and care um, and humbling, uh, but only see that money might have been made out of the whole business. Um, the um, Well, the fact is, though, although that had t- inner t- turmoil had been going on in his heart, um, apparently the disciples didn't have even a hint of it, because when Jesus gives him the sob, um, no one thought anything of Jesus saying, go do what you're going to do, except to have a mitigating explanation. Oh, he's probably going out to, to buy food for, the, for our company or to make some contribution to the poor. So the horror of uh, his deception is, is powerfully set forth in this circumstance. And on the, the bottom of page 39, Dr. Ferguson wants to ask us, how did Jesus know this about Judas? Uh, this leads to a, a very interesting discussion, I think, that begins on page 40. The obvious first answer might be, well, uh, he knew somebody was going to betray him because the scripture had prophesied it. And Jesus uh, was regularly informed by the prophecies concerning the Messiah in his own self-understanding. But then, second, um, the point more put more pointedly is: How did he know the prophecy would be fulfilled by Judas? How does he come to the foreground? And Dr. Ferguson, in the third full paragraph on page forty, um really gets to the heart of it. Uh, He says, In the Gospels, Jesus characteristically discerns God's purposes. And there's a threefold condition for that discernment. One, he knows the scriptures. Two, by the help of the Spirit, he interprets and applies them to his circumstances. And three, he knew the circumstances that he was in. That is, He had an insight into his time and place in redemptive history and what people were like. And with those three states of affairs, in merely Jesus' human nature, he had a capacity for uh, what Dr. Ferguson calls spiritual discernment. That was absolutely remarkable. In other words... This doesn't depend upon some kind of special divine immediate inspiration or uh, revelation to Jesus, but is in fact the fruit of godliness uh, in what is possible um, through uh, a fair and diligent adaptation of your mind and heart through the word of God to the circumstances at hand. Have some clear-eyed vision of what's going on in the world. This seems to me to be a very powerful point. In fact, Dr. Ferguson challenges us that um, haven't we too at least had some occasion where we've had what you might call spiritual discernment. That is that you have a sense about uh, things um, that uh, leads you to a conclusion that maybe a person's trustworthy or not. We might not be able to put it into words exactly what we feel, uh, he says. And let me pause there. In other words, um, it's not uncommon that we know more than we can tell. That we know more than we can tell. In other words, we know something about a state of affairs, but we aren't exactly capable of explaining how we know. It would be better if we did, but the fact is that's the way God has made us. And you can see this in all kinds of circumstances. My my father was not much of an academician. Um, he, he quit uh, high school to go into the Navy, eventually got a certificate, but uh, and he did go to the American School of Baking. Uh, but his job, uh, he, he was the head of uh, uh, Pillsbury's technical uh, Um, baking operations throughout the East Coast and when they would put a new line of equipment in and with the product that Pillsbury was selling them um, he would be called in if there was something wrong they couldn't get it to work right and um, because of his experience in all of the many different ways he'd been involved in doughs and products and mixtures and machines the heat of the place, the circumstances, and so on, he would know what was wrong, even though he couldn't have written you a paper on the subject, or even necessarily help you to see why. Um, In medicine, this is seen most often, uh, and a great uh, uh, philosopher, modern philosopher, Michael Polanyi, who was a physician, um, helped folk to see this. When you're teaching diagnosis... That is when a senior accomplished doctor is trying to teach young new doctors how to diagnose a patient, they walk around with him while he actually does it. And they learn more about diagnosis from seeing him do diagnosis than they could by learning a list of things, partly that he wouldn't be able to qualify, but they learn to see it by learning to see it with him. I think that's something of what uh, Dr. Ferguson is getting at. That he, all of us have that experience to some degree. And in fact, um, you can illustrate this profoundly from other Christians. Um, I think Calvin had this kind of spiritual discernment that made him remarkable in his age in understanding the flow of human events and the times and places probably the greatest example that i know of in history is is robert dabney he had such a profound commitment to scripture and deep understanding of it and such a deep understanding of human nature and such a trust that god was sovereign and is working his ways out that he was very attentive and capable of interpreting the world. And it's so often, if you read about that, people use the word prophetic. He predicted the Civil War in 1856. Uh, he predicted a decline in religious liberty in the modern period. He predicted the rise of uh, feminism, uh, the rise of secular government schools. Uh, he predicted the rise of the uh, children's rights movement. Um, just remarkable. And I think that um, um, the, uh, Ferguson's point is, look, if this, if this is true of folk like us who are sinful, think of what human nature must be capable of in a sinless uh, person like Jesus, uh, a, a greater sensitivity and therefore a profound discernment and thus able to understand that what he was seeing in Judas, finally, was a spirit of what uh, Dr. Ferguson calls anti-grace. Um, he saw Jesus being gracious to Mary and was repelled rather than attracted by it. And this leads on page 41 into a, a uh, profound and masterful discussion of the spirit of uh anti-grace. And I think that it's worth taking a minute on. Um, uh, Dr. Ferguson asserts, and I think he's certainly right, we have a tendency to think that when people see uh, grace at work, um, they'll be attracted to it rather than repelled. But if we understand more deeply um, the unbelieving spirit, um, this is far from true, that at the end of the day, the unbelieving spirit finds grace repulsive because it is necessarily humbling and uh, finds in fact uh, legalism attractive because it gives you the fault, the illusion, of being able to manipulate circumstances to your own advantage, um, and but that's why, however counterintuitive it seems, uh, argues Ferguson uh, that um, by nature people prefer law to grace. Kate, I see your hand. Or will maybe? So Dave, he wouldn't have known
2: that he was. The betrayer, because he knows everything, because he's God, it was more of a human?
0: Yes, precisely. That omniscience, and in fact, I think what Dr. Ferguson wants to argue is that um, in almost all of Jesus' this worldly ministry, he wasn't acting out of uh, the omniscience he had as the second person of the Trinity, but acting out of the perfected human nature in his service to God. Um, and um, and there are a lot of good reasons for thinking that, but one of them is that he was uh, born under the law in order that he might keep the law on our behalf, and thus it needed to be in his human nature born under the law that he was acting in order to uh, act on our behalf.
2: Thank you very much,
0: Mr. Thanks, Kate. That's a good question. Anybody else on this point? Yes, Bonnie.
2: Yes, further, what I kept thinking of um, in this passage and then with Ferguson's writing was, and I think you've described pretty well because he's using his human nature here is why he doesn't do more, um, when he sees what he does, along with, um, the part, the verses where he says he's, he knew that what had been, um, prophesied was coming, was going to come true, and he knew what that meant. And I don't know if, it, as I was reading the chapter, it kept coming up to me and this part right here is, uh, how do we apply this in our lives when we do have that discernment and and caring for someone and and trusting in God's plan and God's future and how He's going to use us? I, I just that's the thing that kept coming up to me. How do I apply this when I do see that?
0: Yes, right. Um, well, I think the first thing is to say that um, we ought to believe that it's possible we'll have such discernment and we need to be prepared to act on it uh, um, but in a properly humbled way because secondly, we know it's defeatable. That is to say, we know that we could find something further out that would lead us to the conclusion that our discernment wasn't sound. And, and the idea that it's defeatable is absolutely crucial to keep us from going off into fanaticism and to uh, um, uh, to the kind of arrogance of those who believe they have some kind of inside track with the, the mind and will of God. Um, the um, But it, it does mean that you... If you think you understand a a circumstance, even if you can't fully explain why, it means you uh, certainly ought to act in light of that understanding um, and let it guide you um, in in your decision-making. So, if um, uh, take the point about trustworthiness that Dr. Ferguson was bringing up. If you've been with a person over several different kinds of circumstances, and you just come to have a profound uneasiness about them being trustworthy, you need to continue to treat them kindly, but at the same time, you maybe don't leave them to watch your children or some such thing as that. And and at the same time, looking with hope that the person might show themselves to be or might actually grow to be better I think, to tie this back into our text tonight, and I'll I'll try and show more of that in a minute, but I think that um, for Jesus, Judas, in these moments, displayed himself to be reprobate. And therefore, Jesus knew that he was beyond hope. And that's part of do what you do quickly. Um, and I'll try and explain a little bit more about that. But um, I, I think that uh, accounts for the idea that Jesus uh, didn't feel that he should do anything further to try and uh, dissuade Judas. But, all right. Um... Well, um, so the, 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 the powerful point that Dr. Ferguson's making here is that there is in the sinful heart a, a disdain for the idea of grace. And it wants to, uh, it, it would be happier, even with the guilt of having broken God's law, um, I would be happier even with the guilt and shame of that, uh, than if I had to refuse grace, to admit that I was helpless, and that only by dependent upon the largesse of God could I ever uh, be received of him. And uh, Dr. Ferguson's conclusion is that Judas must have been like that. He saw grace in Jesus' life and heard it in his words, but he refused that grace and reacted against it. Ferguson says, What repelled Judas and sent him headlong into his betrayal was the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a very powerful insight, I think. And in fact, let me just bring up another couple of points here that uh, seem to me to be striking. There may have been more ministry to Judas in this instance, right up to the end. Uh, It depends upon uh, a a certain knowledge of the circumstances in the historical setting and a certain reading of the text. But let me at least bring it up for your consideration. They were reclining at table. That was a posture uh, for special occasions like Passover. You reclined on your side with your head toward the table, your feet away from the table at an angle, leaning on your left elbow. Uh, And you used your right hand uh, for eating. As the host, Jesus was likely reclined in the center. The place of honor, so leaning on his left uh, elbow, eating with his right, the place of honor was to the left of the host or the most honored person. That was the number one place. The number two place was to the right. So, um, the second place is on the right. From verse 25, when we have John leaning back to speak, he must have been on Jesus' right hand. That is, he was in the place of number two. And when we have verse 26, Jesus dipping and handing to Judas without getting up, suggests that Judas was probably on Jesus' left hand in the place of honor among the apostles at this feast. And it's entirely possible that giving to Judas this place of honor was a part of Jesus' last appeal to Judas not to do this horrible thing that he had concluded he intended to do. Further, giving the bread, the sop, would not have revealed the betrayal, and you see it didn't. They actually thought Judas was off to do some good thing. It wouldn't have revealed the betrayal, but it wouldn't have been unheard of for a host to share something specially with a a guest as a special mark of honor so that Jesus could have deliberately chosen an action that would have been, uh, again, signaling to Judas uh, that he had a place of value in the apostolic company if he would just uh, continue in faithfulness. But in fact... um, Judas rejected all these things. And, um, and so God gave him up to that horror, uh, as did Jesus give him up to it. Our Confession of Faith in 5.6 puts it this way. God gives some people over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God uses for the softening of others. So in this room, that night, all kinds of means to soften. Judas' feet are washed along with the rest, probably a place of honor. Not uh, uh, um, betrayed in all of his wickedness before them, but the sop offered, but the sop rejected. Christ rejected, and Christ gave him up to the hardness of his own heart. And in fact, those very things were part of the hardening of his heart, things that would have softened others. Calvin puts it this way, By giving the sop, Christ did not give an opportunity to Satan, but rather Judas, having received the sop, gave himself up entirely to Satan. It was indeed the occasion, but it was not the cause. His heart, which was harder than iron, ought to have been softened by so great a kindness shown to him by Christ. And now his desperate and incurable obstinacy deserves that from God by his just judgment should harden his heart still more uh, by Satan. Thus, When by acts of kindness to enemies we, and here he's quoting Romans 12, heap coals of fire on their heads, if they are utterly uncurable, they are more enraged and inflamed to their destruction. And yet no blame is due on this account to our kindness by which their hearts ought to have been inflamed uh, to love us. Well, it's uh, quite a remarkable section. Um, Much to think about there. Um, Questions, comments on that? Well, on 42, um, uh, Dr. Ferguson tells us the story about the physician who uh, wanted nothing to do with forgiveness. And he quotes one of my favorite all-time hymns, Rock of Ages. so beautifully expressing the spirit that Judas wanted nothing to do with. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress helpless. Look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly wash me savior or I die well um, when Jesus began to unmask him to make it plain that he knew his secret uh, Judas, Judas never cried out Lord is it I but rather he must have been relieved to leave that room perhaps this was the last straw for him having seen the grace of having his dirty feet washed, uh, he was infuriated by it. Um, and Dr. Ferguson uh, challenges us a little bit right here. He said, says, Some Christians feel uncomfortable at the thought that Jesus washed Judas's feet. Surely Jesus didn't, couldn't do that, not Judas. But he says, Does this reflect the fact that there are dirty feet that we ourselves would never wash. I think that's a challenging uh, reflection. Dave, hey, I heard them uh, recently in a sermon referring to this, uh, Dr. Ferguson, saying something to the effect of, "You know, if you ever wanted to know, you know, are, are we supposed to love our enemies? Then, then this is the example. Mm. You know, this should teach us: yes, we ought to." We, we've Mm. to love our enemies mm. mm. wonderful wonderful well the, uh, this section he concludes with the horror of uh, the fact that Judas becomes probably the clearest illustration in the New Testament of the words of Hebrews 6, 4-6 to 6, of the one who's turned away from seeing and knowing something of grace never having had the reality of it in him uh, but then it becomes impossible to restore them Um, Let me just make a few other points about this incident uh, with respect to Judas um, before we close. First, notice that Satan is mentioned only here by name in the gospel. And we know little of Satan's agency in this matter. But what we do know is that he was at work, at work in such a way that Judas remained morally responsible for his actions. There's no devil made me do it. Judas did it Uh, horribly, however. Satan's uh, uh, aid was a part of that. Um, But, as Calvin was suggesting, as a part of his judicial condemnation, that he should be turned over to Satan because of the willful wickedness of his heart. Notice this further. Jesus predicts with certainty Judas' free behavior. An infallible prophet doesn't err. And yet the actions of Judas remain free and morally responsible and hence reprehensible. So that perfect prophetic foresight of something certainly to happen does not eliminate human free agency and moral accountability and you can see that, that preeminently in the Bible's point of view on this subject in particular and, and finally let me note in, um, in verse 27 uh, we read then, after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Our text says, Jesus said to him. The Greek text says, therefore, Jesus said to him. For some reason, the ESV has dropped the therefore. If you go back to the uh, American Standard Version, you'll see that it's included. But it is not insignificant, that word. And it's actually crucial to understanding The movement of Judas taking the morsels, Satan entering them, and the way Jesus responds, what you're going to do do quickly. Why the therefore? The point appears to be that Jesus recognized the finality of Judas's determined betrayal with the coming of Satan and therefore urged Judas, Judas to be about what he had committed himself to accomplish to his own destruction. I think that, uh, that that's um, an important part of this text. Well, the, um, Judas uh, begins, as it were, a cascade of opposition to Jesus, the final flood of human malice toward him uh, by the Roman soldiers, by the crowds mocking him, the religious and secular authorities, Uh, conspiring together to destroy him. But the point is that none of these groups, none of the individuals in it, had the authority or power to settle Jesus' destiny. Um, um, What Judas was going to do was going to be for the glory of Christ and the salvation of the world. Not his intention. But that would be the outcome. And that's why when Judas leaves, Jesus can conclude with certainty. Now is the Son glorified. and Now is the Father glorified. Um, When Judas leaves the room, the atmosphere changes. The darkness outside cannot destroy the glory that is emerging inside. That's the concluding line of our Chapter, uh, a remarkable chapter in so many ways. Um, Thoughts, reflections, uh, questions you'd like to ask about it?
1: Dave, um, you mentioned the, the good point about the fact that Judas's actions, although fully predicted, were also freely done. It seems like Armenians should have a, a difficult time with Judas. Yes. I mean, never have you had a person short of the other apostles or disciples where they had more direct involvement, experience with with the Son of God and yet they he rejects him um, which just goes for the the Calvinists to show that's all of our uh, outcomes unless the spirit works in our heart Yes, Uh, but an Arminian doesn't really have an answer for that it seems
0: right I think that's exactly right that's exactly right yeah I mean that goes to Jesus saying you must be born again um is saying that the spirit works when and how and where he will or no one can come unto me unless the father draw him um but on the other hand that if you come unto me i will no wise cast you out and no one can snatch you from my hand that's the full uh panoply of the wonder of what christ uh does for sinners um Any other thoughts on this? Well, thank you all so much for coming tonight. Um, We'll take up chapter 4 next week. Um, And uh, in the meantime, try and stay out of the sun. (laughs) Let me pray for us. Our Father, we ask that um, these sobering uh, thoughts... um, the great sadness that caused Jesus such sadness and sorrow that our hearts would be moved in um, empathy and deep distress to see one plunge himself into destruction. And yet we recognize, as Paul has just said, this is a picture of our own hearts apart from Christ's intervening grace. And we pray that, therefore, we would be those who delight in grace, count it precious for ourselves and all its humbling character, and love to see the beauty of it uh, in the lives of others, and longs uh, to see more and more of the power of the Spirit to transform sinners from death to life and then from there to that life increasingly taking on the character of the life of our Savior. We pray this in his name.
1: Amen.